Friends, welcome to Torah Studies, our weekly look at the Torah portion. Um, let's make sure everybody has a copy. There you go. Copy, copy, copy. All right. This is exciting. We have a great Torah portion, a great Torah, a great Torah conversation. Let's get rolling. So this week's Torah portion is, who's got the name? Who's got the name? This week's Torah portion. Chayesara, excellent. We got this. Chayesara. And the truth is that a name is very important. Name is very important. You know, there's, a, there's been a motto, not a motto, slogan, motto, statement, truth, lately. Words matter. You ever hear this statement, words matter? Yeah. Because it used to be we've evolved in this way of thinking. Remember when we were kids? When they said, sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. They used to say that names don't mean anything. The words don't matter. But that was never true. Words always mattered. Even when they said it didn't matter. You know who said it didn't matter? Those that were using the words to, to hurt other people. Like, oh, it doesn't matter. Right? But we know better. I grew up in the 80s and 90s. 80s, 90s. Yeah. The decades of slap bracelets. Remember those guys? Slap bracelets. Yeah, remember the gummy, those gummy, gummy? Did we have the gummy or was that later? What, what did we have? I know not everyone's from the same, it doesn't matter, work with me guys. All right, those, those things, those bracelet things. Friendship yeah. bracelets. Friendship bracelets, oh, that's so cute. Mixtapes, I used to make mixtapes. Oh yeah, yeah. All the time. yeah, yep, 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 yep. Mixtapes, those are the best. I, remember I had a whole situation set up, I had like, CD player with like, you know, a, a, a receiver, audio receiver with speakers and like used to record in a whole, I was a whole DJ for no reason. <laughs> anyway, and then it's like, oh. turntable? No, uh, n well, okay, so I missed, no, okay, funny you mentioned turntable actually because there was a turntable, I didn't use it, but now I have a turntable in my house actually, but it's just like standalone. Anyway, but yes. Turntable is, uh, it's hard to find, anyway, it's hard to find Jewish music on turntable nowadays. Okay, we'll, we'll have a discussion about vinyl at some point in time. By the way, you should know that we're doing, breaking news, bam, 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 we're doing a special musical event in January called, this is, break, this is like so breaking news that the breaking news people don't know about the breaking news. Like, I don't even know about this, and yet I'm saying this. It's, that's how fresh this is. We're doing an event in January. Okay, January. It's going to be called Judaism the Musical. Judaism the Musical? No. Judaism the Soundtrack. Sorry, you won't see me dancing. Judaism the Soundtrack is what it's going to be called, and it's going to be an exploration of Hasidic tunes and Jewish music. So... Stay tuned for that. It's going to be all vinyl all the time, but that's in January. Here's the deal. Words matter. Whatever decade you're from, whatever decade we're in now, I know which one we are in, by the way, but anyway, words matter. Words are important. And the way we understand this in Kabbalah, the way we understand this in Kabbalah is that language is the actual code of existence. It's the actual code of existence, which takes me to my next announcement. The Kabbalah of the Matrix. Super excited about this. It's on the website. If you want to get in on the Kabbalah of the Matrix, if you know the Matrix, Keanu Reeves says, come to this course, the Kabbalah of the Matrix, in TownJewishAcademy.org. Back to our story. Adina Malka, you have a green background. It's reminding me of the Matrix, huh? Is he going to be here? Yes, he will. Well, Keanu Reeves will be here in spirit, maybe not, if not in person. Yeah. 
Okay, so here's the deal. Language is the code of creation, which means that the letters matter. Characters, characters, not character, that also, but characters, letters matter. Words matter, phrases matter. Sentences, paragraphs, stories matter. The Torah, every single letter of Torah matters. In fact, the Talmud tells us that there were great rabbis, including Rabbi Akiva, who would expound upon every letter of the Torah, mountains and mountains of laws, to the extent that the great Rabbi Akiva would derive lessons from the crowns on top of the letters. Oh, you're wondering what's a crown on top of a letter? Case in point, my kippah. You guys see this right here? Boom. The shin, that's a weird angle. I apologize for that. Take a look-see at this yarmulke. Ed, are you rocking this yarmulke? Of course. You're rocking this yarmulke. Look at you. Where'd you get that from? Oh, the bar mitzvah. The shin. All right, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. If you look at this, oh, I wish I could show it to you without, like, leaning in in a weird fashion. Okay, it's got a crown. Do you see the little crown, the little crown right there in the top? Yes? You guys see that? All right, don't, don't get too close. So here's the deal. The crown on certain letters in the Torah scroll, certain letters are written with a little crown flourish on top. It says that Rabbi Kiva would darshan, he would learn, derive amazing laws from the letters with the crowns. Every letter matters. Even the little pitchifkas, even the little designs on the letters in the Torah matter. The Rebbe says, taking it a step further, not only do the stories of Torah matter, the laws, the stories, the words, the letter, the crowns of the Torah matter, but listen to this, listen to this. Even the names of the Torah portions the, the names that we attribute to the Torah portions, even those matter. Let me explain what that means. Every Torah portion, every week we read a different section of Torah. Now, in the, in the Torah scroll, it doesn't say, oh, hey, you're in Torah portion of uh, Chayisar. It doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. We have names that we have traditionally called these Torah portions. So, for example, Bereshis, Noach, Lech Lecha, Vayera, Chayesara, Todos, Vayetze, Vayishlach, Vayeshev, Miketz, Vayigash, Vayechi. Those are the 12 Torah portion names of the book of Genesis. Book of Exodus, Shmos, Vayera, Bo, Beshalach, Yisro, Meshpatim, etc. I'm not going to go through all of them. 53 in total. Every Torah portion has a name that we refer to it as. Where does that name come from? What's the origins of the name? Tradition. Tradition. So you would think that the name is just whatever we decided to call it. Maybe it's not so, so significant. The Rebbe says, the Rebbe says that that's not the case. The name, not only is every letter in the Torah important, even the names that we call the Torah portion, that's also significant. Because if we've decided collectively as a people that this will be the name of the Torah portion, and this has been established for a thousand years plus as the name of the Torah portion. It's also part of Torah itself. Are you with me on this idea? But where does the name come from? You said tradition. Tradition. So tradition. Just... Thousand plus years ago, they decided this was the name of the Torah portion. Were there debates? I don't think there were. You know, there, there are some recorded instances where a Torah portion was called initially one name and then it evolved into another name. But it seems like there was, at some point, there sprung up some sort of consensus as to what we'll call this Torah portion. Rabbi. Yes. 
Uh, well, my granddaughter's name is Hayasara because she was born on Parshas Hayasara. Beautiful, beautiful. I love that. That's great. Hayasara. Um, I want to show you guys, let's read this together. I want to show you a beautiful, um, a beautiful reflection on this by the Rebbe. And this is going to form text number one. I'm going to share my screen. Uh, will I share my screen? I will share my screen. Give me a moment. I have to get this nice and fresh. Okay, so for those in person, 51, page 51. If you have the book also, page 51. And on the screen, right here, text one. I'm going to read this. The Rebbe writes, or the Rebbe says actually, the reality that for easily a thousand years or more, you see how the Rebbe says eh, a thousand years or more, the Jewish people have been accustomed to calling the portions by these names is ample evidence that they are Torah names. In other words, they're not just eh, random, it doesn't mean anything. No, no, the fact that it's been a thousand years at least that Jews have been calling the Torah portions by the names that we call the Torah portions, that means that it's significant. It's Torah names. Inasmuch as the Torah portions have been established with these names for hundreds and hundreds of years, and especially since they have been called as such by the great sages and teachers of Israel, they are undoubtedly their names according to the Torah. So the Rebbe says two arguments. Number one, the fact that there's so many years of, of using this name for this Torah portion, for whatever Torah portion is, right? It could be any of them. Number one, and the fact that the greatest of the great leaders use this name, whatever, what, whatever the name that is, for the Torah portion means that it has significance. Which brings us to the name of this Torah portion, which is Chaye Sarah. Chaye Sarah, as Ray said, the name, uh, Ray, you said it's the name of your granddaughter? My granddaughter, my Israeli. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Chaye Sarah. Chaye Sarah. So Chaye Sarah, what does it mean? What does Chaye Sarah mean? It means, Chaye means life. Sarah means Sarah. Chaye Sarah means the life of Sarah. That's the name of the Torah portion. Now, where does it come from? All right. Can I interrupt you one second? Always. Yeah, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but then why is it my Bar Mitzvah portion, when I was Bar Mitzvah, was called Shlach Lacha? Yeah. But, but at the bar, I see it's called Shlach. Good question. So the answer is, traditionally, some people call it shlach, and some people call it shlach lecha. Chabadniks are always on the move. Too busy to stop. Shlach lecha, too complicated. Shlach. That's it. Shlach and we're done. Shlach and we're out. That's it. Um, no, you're asking a good question. Basically, different traditions. That's it. So, but again, the core name, though, shlach lecha means send for yourself. Shlach means send. Okay, the core name though, is, um, is tradition, more or less. Again, with some, as I mentioned before, there are some variances, but more or less there is consensus. The Rebbe says the fact there's consensus, the fact that there's such longevity and consensus and that the greatest of the greats use this name, that means that there's significance to the name. Okay, so with that being said, so with that being said, give me a second here. Okay. We need to examine the name of this Torah portion, which, as we established before, is Chayisara. Chayisara means the life of Sarah. Now, why is it called Chayisara? So a simple reading, a simple understanding would have it as the, the fact that it's one of the first words of the Torah portion. Vayihiyu Chayisara. And the life of Sarah was. So it's like the first, it's within the first three words of the Torah portion. The first word is Vayihiyu. Um, one second. Yeah, Vayihiyu. 
Vayihiyu. And then Chayisar. You know, in fact, let's do this. Let's do this. Let's make this easier. Let's turn to text number two. Text number two, I'm going to share the screen to see it online. Here we go. Text number two, Bereshis 23. Here we go. The Torah portion begins right here. And the life, verse one, and the life of Sarah was. 100 years and 20 years and 7 years, these were the years of the life of Sarah. Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah is Chaye Sarah. So a simple understanding is, yeah, why is it called Chaye Sarah? Because that's like the first few words of the Torah portion. Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. The problem is that the name of a Torah portion should fit the theme of the Torah portion. Right? You would think the name of something, like you name a book, you name a chapter, you name something, right? You would think that you would name, um, you would name a portion, you would name a book, a chapter, after the main theme. And so what's this, what's this, what's this Torah portion called? Chayisar, the life of Sar. Yeah, the funny thing is you look, at, you look at the Torah portion and you find things that don't exactly fit with this theme. So let me explain. Let me explain. If you think about the first few Torah portions in the, uh, in the Torah, think about Bereshit. Bereshit. What does Bereshit mean? In the, in the beginning. Bereshit means in the beginning. So what's the content of the Torah portion of Bereshit in the beginning? It talks about the stuff that happened in the beginning. That makes sense. So that one makes sense. Then the next Torah portion is Noach. And what's ta- what, what does Noach talk about? Noach and the flood. Good. Great name for a band, by the way. Noach and the flood, and the floods. Okay, fine. So we have Bereshit in the beginning. Noach is Noach. The next portion, Lech Lecha. What does Lech Lecha mean? Go forth. go forth, go forward, go to yourself. Right, so that's God's call to Abraham. Oh, we're talking about Abraham's journey. Perfect. So, so far we have the beginning. Then we have Noach and the flood. So we have the origin story, Genesis. We have Noach and the flood and the ark and the you know, saving humanity and the animals. Then we have Lech Lecha, Abraham's journey. So again, so far, so good. Everything's, you know, clicking with the names. Vayera, last week was Vayera. Vayera means, and he appeared. It's referring to God appearing to Abraham. God visits Abraham. The angels visit Abraham. Divine revelation, all that good stuff. Great. So far, so good. So we have origins. We have Noah and the flood. We have Abraham's journey. We have divine revelation. All good. This week, Chayesara, the life of Sarah. And you would expect, what would this Torah portion be about? Based on the name, Chayesar, the life of Sarah, what would, what would it be about? Life the life of Sarah. And guess what happens? In the first few verses, she passes away. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Right? You start the Torah portion, and literally, it says the life of Sarah was 127 years, and then she passed away. You would think if the Torah portion was called the life of Sarah, it would talk about Sarah's life. But it doesn't. It talks about her death. Straight to the past tense. Straight to the past tense. The life of Sarah was. It's like, hold on. What's going on? It doesn't make any sense. Are you with me on the question? I'm sure you're with me on the question. Every Torah portion, the name of the Torah portion is supposed to thematically represent the, the content of the portion. This Torah portion's name is Chayasar, the life of Sarah. And yet it does not talk about her life. It talks about her death. It talks about her passing. It talks about her in past tense. All right, let's look at, okay, so that's question number one. How does the name fit the content of the portion which deals with her post-life, which deals with what happened after she died? 
The next question is even more of a bomb. This is a bomb question. You ready? We're about to detonate the bomb. Here's the, here's the bomb. There are three major stories in this week's Torah portion. Three major, I'm going to go through all of them. Three major narratives in this week's Torah portion. If you know these three stories, you got the, you got the parsha. Each of them have nothing to do with the life of Sarah. With the life of Sarah. Nothing. Okay, you ready? Story number one. I'll tell it to you outside. We're going to do the verses inside. Here they, here, here they are outside. Okay, story number one. Abraham buying a burial plot for, his, for Sarah and burying her. Is that the life of Sarah? No, it's her death. Literally her death and her burial. Okay, number one. Story number two. Abraham, Avram, calls on his servant, Eliezer, to find a wife for his son, Isaac. Now that his mother is gone, and now that everyone's getting older, it's time to find Yitzchak, the son, a shirach, a wife. Great. Great. Wonderful. Yeah? Is this the life of Sarah? Again, it's after her life. The third story is Avram remarrying a woman named Keturah and having more children. <laughs> I, I don't think I'm being clear, so let me be a little bit more clear. The first story, again, first story is the burial plot and burying Sarah. That's clearly after her life. Second story is Yitzchak getting married. Or finding a wife for Yitzchak, which is every, the family moving on after her passing. And the third story is Avram marrying someone else and having more kids. Again, Avram, Abraham, is now moving on. Are you with me on this? These have nothing to do with the life of Sarah. These are post her passing. I hope that makes sense. So let's do the verses inside so we're, we're all clear on these three major narratives. And let's see, let's see how it plays out. All right, so I'm going to share my screen. And please open up your... Um, the book, the books, the booklets to page 51 second, 52. And let's take a gander at, uh, at what's going on over here. All right, I'm going to start reading. This is narrative number one, story number one, which is the, um, the passing of Sarah and her burial. And the life of Sarah was 100 years and 20 years and 7 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died. In Kiryat Arba, which is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, Canaan and Avram came to eulogize Sarah and to bewail, uh, to, to bewail her. And Avram rose, Abraham arose and prostrated himself to the people of the land, to the children of Ches, Chet. And he spoke with them, saying, If it is your will that I bury my dead from before you, listen to me and entreat for me to Ephron, the son of Tzohar, that he may give me the Machpelah cave, which belongs to him, which is, at the end of this, which is at the end of his field, for a full price, let him give it to me in your midst for burial property. So basically, Avram Abraham is negotiating a burial place for his deceased wife, Sarah. And they had a conversation. Fast forward a few verses, verse 16. And Avram Abraham listened to Ephron, and Avram weighed out to Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the sons of Chet, 400 shekels of silver accepted by the merchant. So basically, Avram secured a piece of land. He bought the land for a burial property. And afterwards, verse 19, Abraham, Avram, buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, facing Mamre, which is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. That's it. So narrative number one is the passing and the burial, the purchasing of the land and the burial of Sarah, clearly not Sarah, her life, clearly her death and her burial. You with me on this? She's gone, and now she's buried. That's story number one. 
Story number two is finding a shidduch, finding a wife for Isaac, for Yitzchak. Let's continue. This is text number three, page 54. And Abraham, Avram was old. I'm, I'm going to use the Hebrew names just because they sound so much cooler. And Avram was old, advanced in days, and Hashem, God, had blessed Avram with everything. And Avram said to his this is after his wife's passing, right? And Avram said to his servant, the elder of his house, whose name was Eliezer, who ruled over all that was his, please place your hand under my thigh, and I will adjure you. That's an interesting point, which we'll save maybe for a little bit later. Um, well, so the idea, okay, all right, now that you asked, Linda, so basically the way it works is when you take an oath, Typically, you have to hold on to a chepzah mitzvah, a mitzvah item. You know, like people place their hand on a Bible, etc. Yeah. Well, the only mitzvah that Avram had, oh, yeah, circumcision. That was the only mitzvah. Yeah. hey that was the only, the only commandment that he was directly given from God was that. So, that, anyway, so, all right, let's move on. Number three, verse three. And I will adjure you. By the Lord. I'm just telling you. No, what, what I'm telling, I'm telling you what the commentaries are saying. All right. Good. And Avram, um, okay. And I will adjure you. So Avram wants Eliezer, the servant, to promise the following. And I'll adjure you by the Lord, the God of the heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife from my son from the daughters of the Canaanites in whom midst I dwell. I want you to, in other words, I want you to find a wife for my son, but not from the local girls, not from the local uh, populace. Okay, because they were pagans, idolaters, whatever. So where, should, where are you going to find the shidduch? Where are you going to find the wife for Isaac? Verse 4, but you shall go to my land and to my birthplace and you shall take a wife for my son for Isaac. In other words, go back to my, my hometown where I still have mishpacha, my, the cousins, the family, whatever, like the extended family back home and find a girl from there and then bring her back here. Okay, and then fast forward, the story is very long. So we just did the first four verses of chapter 24 of Genesis, and now skip to verse 64 of the same chapter, and that's after Rebecca is found and identified, and she's, oh, she's amazing, perfect, perfect uh, match for Isaac, and then she heads back with Eliezer to meet Isaac, and here we go, and Rebecca lifted her eyes and saw Isaac, and she let herself down from the camel, verse 65, page 55, and she said to, to the servant, who is that man walking in the field toward us? And the servant said, He's the guy. He's my master. That's Isaac. And she took the veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And was how the whole story transpired, which we skipped. Literally skipped, fast forward through. But that was a whole story unto itself. Verse 67. And Isaac brought her to the tent of Sarah, his mother. And he took Rebekah. And she became his wife. And he loved her. And Isaac was comforted for the loss of his mother. Isaac gets married. And he's able to... Move on from the loss of his mother. Again, how is this Chayi Sarah, the life of Sarah? You call a Torah portion by a name, it's got to be precise. The, le- the words, words matter. Words matter. It has to be precise. So what's going on here? We call this Torah portion Chayi Sarah, the life of Sarah. And you would think it's about her life. Nope. It's about her death and her burial and her son moving on, getting married and, you know, replacing his mother in, in essence. And then look at the last story of the Torah portion. Yeah, ver- uh, text four. Take a look. This is how the Torah portion ends. And Avram took another wife, and her name was Keturah. And she bore him Zimran and Yakshan and Meddan and Midyan and Yishbak and Shuach. Yeah, a lot of complicated names. And Avram gave all, and who says there aren't any original names? If you want an original name, just open up the Bible. You've got all these interesting, cool throwback names. 
All right? And Avram gave all that he had to Yitzchak and to the sons of Avram's concubines. Avram gave gifts and he sent them away from his son Isaac while he, Avram, was still alive, eastward to the land of the east. Basically, Avram moves on, has a whole other family, he gets married, has more children, all these kids, Zimran, Yaksha, Midom, Minyan, Yashbak, Yeshuach, all these kids. And they become the leaders of the East. He gives them gifts, gifts of wisdom. They say that Eastern philosophy, meditation, comes from this story, which is how ultimately they're connected. One second, which is how ultimately they're connected at the source. That's what they say. It says to the East, land of the East. Go figure where the East is. I know where the East is. The East is the East, right? So according to our tradition, this is where the East gets its wisdom, its meditation from. It ultimately comes from Abraham, from Abrahamic sources comes from original Abrahamic sources. But what's the point? My point? The point is my question. It's not my question. It's really the Rebbe's question, but I'm just representing it here tonight. I'm presenting it here tonight. The question is, you call the Torah portion Chai Sarah, the life of Sarah, it's nothing to do with her life. Her death, her burial, her son moving on, her husband moving on, the life of Sarah. It should be the death of Sarah or what happened after the life of Sarah. That should be the name of the Torah. It should be called... After Sarah passes away. That should be the name of the Torah portion. Here are the stories that happen after her passing. Not the life of Sarah. It's a misnomer. It's just simply mislabeled. Ray, Ray jump in. Um, yes. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, I got you. Okay. Isn't, um, isn't it true, but maybe it's not, that Keturah is really Hagar? Yes. Yes, Keturah is Hagar. Keturah is Hagar. Who was Hagar? Hagar was Sarah's maidservant who had a bit of a conflict with Sarah. Remember that? that? By the way, that only strengthens my question. That only strengthens my question. He's replacing Sarah with the handmaid that at some point she said, send out of the house because I can't, I, we can't be in the same house together. And who does he, who does he marry? Who does he remarry? Hagar. Chaya Sarah, baby? This is Chaya Sarah? This is Sarah's legacy? Mark, I heard legacy. This is her legacy? Her legacy is um, being buried, her son moving on, and her husband remarrying Hagar? That's legacy? That's her life? How is this her life? Then why is it named Chayasar? Why is it named? So Linda's asking the Rebbe's question. Why is it named Chayasar? So here's the deal. Here's the deal. Does it make sense? Doesn't make sense. Good. As long as we're all feeling the question and getting bothered by the question, then, we're, then, I'm, then I'm doing my job. You're supposed to be bothered by the question because then you'll be excited by the answer. If you're not bothered by it, if the question doesn't bother you, the answer won't mean anything. So I'm hoping the question is bothering you. Or at least the me repeating the question needing to bother you is bothering you. Either one of these two things should bother you. So let's go. Let's jump in. The Reb explains, I'm going to give you, oh, 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 slow down. You want the answer? Not so fast. Not going to happen yet. All right. Let's develop some more ideas. Hold on. Let's develop some more ideas. I'm sharing my screen. Let's do more texts. Let's do more inside. All right, here we go. I want to break down these stories. I want to break them down. Story number one, Sarah passes away. He's looking for a burial plot. He buys a piece of land and buries her. My friends, this is after Sarah's life is concluded. You don't bury someone who's still alive. This is not Chaye Sarah. This is not the life of Sarah. This is the death of Sarah. Next story is where Yitzchak finds, where they find a wife for Yitzchak. Look at text 5a. Text 5a. This is an excerpt from what we read before, 56, page 56. Isaac brought her, brought Rebecca Rivka. Rivka. My daughter's name is Rivka. We call her Riva, but same name. Isaac brought her, Rivka, Rebecca, to the tent of Sarah's mother, and he took Rebecca 
and she became his wife, and he loved her. Look at that last line. And Isaac was comforted for the loss of his mother. What does that mean, Rashi says? 5b. Take a look. He brought her to the tent of Sarah's mother. He brought her to the tent, and behold, she was Sarah his mother, i.e., she became the likeness of Sarah's mother. For as long as Sarah was alive, a candle burned from one Shabbos Eve to the next. That was a miracle. That's a long-lasting candle. It's a seven-day candle right. right there. A blessing was found in the dough. Lots of blessing in the dough, and a cloud was attached to the tent. Usually people don't associate clouds with blessings, but work with me here. That was considered to be a blessing. When she died, these things ceased, and when Rebecca arrived, they resumed, which means that Rebecca took the place, listen to my words, took the place of Sarah. When Sarah was alive, there were miracles. Sarah passes away, miracles end. Rebecca comes in, and the miracles return, which means that Sarah, sorry, Rebecca, Rivka, the wife of Yitzchak, the wife of Isaac, she is now replacing his mother. She's replacing his mother. Which, so the question is, how is this the life of Sarah? It's the replacement of Sarah. This is not the life of Sarah. Now look at Rashi's continuation in 57. This is even more dramatic. For his mother, it is the way of the world that as long as a person's mother is alive, he's attached to her. But as soon as she, as soon as she dies, he finds comfort in his wife. That's Rashi. Rashi says a person essentially finds comfort in his wife when one's mother passes away. There you go. So it seems clear that this is, again, him moving on. Take a look at text number six. This is the third of the three stories. Yeah. I'm a little disturbed about this. And then Sarah, his, 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 she was Sarah's mother, meaning Rebecca. Rebecca. Um, it doesn't actually mean that Rebecca was literally Sarah. What okay. it means is okay. she filled that absence. Sarah brought all these miracles, the dough miracle, the candle miracle, the cloud miracle, you know, all, the, all these miracles, all these blessings. She passed away, no blessings. Rebecca comes in, and behold, the blessings, the blessings return. Oh, but the point is, but as, insofar as the question is concerned, so then it's not Sarah, it's Rebecca who's doing it now, and we, Sarah's gone, and that's it. So, what's, so how is this the Lachai Sarah? How is this portion called Chai Sarah? It literally should be called after the life, after the life of Sarah, not the life of Sarah. And, and the most dramatic example of this is text six, which is the final piece, the final story of the three, which we've mentioned already a few times, which is when, when uh, hold on one second, not text six. The, the, the story is where Avram remarries Keturah, who is Hagar. Hold on one second, Mark, before you jump in, let me read text six. It says here, look at text 6, this is from earlier in the Torah, and Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian whom she had borne to Avram making merry, and Sarah said to Avram, drive out this handmaid and her son, for the son of this handmaid shall not inherit with my son with Isaac. So she says to Avram earlier, when she was still alive, she said, get rid of Hagar and her son. And now she dies, so what does Avram do? Remarries Hagar, the one who he kicked out based on Sarah's request. Are you with me what's going on here? So how is this the life and legacy of Sarah? This is not. This is going against what she had told him to do. Uh, Mark. A couple of things. Yes. First, I still hold to my idea. So now stop so I can talk for a second. I still hold to my concept that this is the legacy of Sarah. First, the cave of Machpelah was not just a grave. This was a site. It was a site not only for Sarah to be buried and for Avram to be buried later, which any grave could be, but it, was, it also had been the site of burial for Adam and Eve. And in the future, it would also be the burial spot uh, of Jacob. Uh, and and I, I guess, I guess my, my point is that it was not just a, a grave. It was a site where our patriarchs, the patriarchs of religion, were, were buried. 
Okay, good. And that's the first thing. So, the, I, so, so in other words, this being a legacy, it wasn't just a burial. A burial would have been a burial. This was much more than a burial. Okay, yeah. I don't want to monopolize this, but, but, but I'll go to the second, I'll, and we'll leave out the third. But the second is about, about Isaac. Again, uh, I understand Isaac never spoke to Abraham after the Akita. I understand there's no recording of him speaking again with him. So, but the, I guess my, my point, I guess, getting around to it is simply this, though, that Isaac did indeed move on to become the second leg of, the, of, of that three-legged stool of Judaism, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he became, uh, and this is from the legacy of Sar, which, which he imparted to him, I guess, as, as he, from the time he was a little boy. I, I, so that, that's, that, that's my campus. I hear you. I know. I hear you. What Mark is saying is essentially that because she passes away and Avram purchases this this burial property, now others now becomes a Jewish holy site and greats are buried there. And because Sarah educated her son Isaac, he gets married and becomes the second patriarch. Yeah, that's true. I can't discount that. What you're saying is true. But still, why is the Torah portion called Chayisa, the life of Sarah, when it seems to be all the events that are happening after her passing? And it seems even from, from that level of legacy that you're mentioning, it seems like, uh, to me, a bit of a tenuous connection. I understand what you're saying, but it seems still a little bit, like a little bit not, not super, it's not her life. It's Okay, so here's what I want to explain um, along the lines of legacy, because we are going to talk about legacy, but from a different perspective, as you'll see soon. So what is life? Forget legacy. What is life? We talk about life and legacy. What's life? So the way life is understood, life is the opposite of death, right? Death means something ends. Death means a cessation of something. Death means finality. Death, death is the end. What is life? Continuity. Life is that which goes on. The true definition of life is that which never ends. So in other words, the true form of life is actually eternal life. Anything that dies... You can question how alive it was even while it was alive. For those of you that, that, are, that have been with us Sunday mornings for Kabbalah and Coffee, so you might be familiar with this teaching that we spoke about, which is the idea of the false waters. False waters. False waters. The Torah says regarding certain mitzvot that you need living waters. So the Talmud says, what's, a, what's living waters? Living waters are waters that come, like natural bodies of water that come from a natural spring or source. Um, but if they dry up even once in seven years... It's not considered to be living waters. In other words, if the waters dry up, even once in a while, it's no longer alive. Anything that ultimately ceases means that it's not truly eternal, which means it's not truly alive. So true life is not defined in a, fra in a, in a, in a, in a um, fraction of time. It's not defined by a slice of time where you see, oh, does it look alive there? Then it's alive. Life means that which continues. That which is eternal, that which goes, has, you know, starts consistently through beginning, middle, and end. It's kind of like this life is, is synonymous with truth. And what is truth? Truth is that which is unwavering. Truth is that which is always true, not which is only true sometimes and not true other times. If it's only true sometimes and not true other times, then it's not truth. So wait. Truth? Sorry. Yeah, no, go ahead. Wait, I'm curious about this false waters. Yeah, false waters. Yeah. What? So that it says that with regards to, let's say... The, the ashes of the red heifer, the purification of the red heifer. So you take a red heifer, and then you burn the red heifer, you take its ashes, and you have to mix it with mayim chayim, living waters. What's living waters? It has to, water that's drawn from a natural spring source uh -huh. that is constantly flowing. 
if that source dries up, even if it comes back, it's not considered life. So even while it's flowing, if you know that sometimes it stops, it's not, it's not life. Because life doesn't end. The truest definition of life is that which just is living. So which means like this. How do we know, when some, how do we know that someone's alive? Not while they're living, right? I'll explain this. How do you know someone's alive? If their life continues even after their so-called death, then you know they're really alive. If someone only lives from birth to the time that, they're, that they pass away and, are, and are, are, are laid to rest, if that's the only measure of their life, then that means that even while they were alive, they weren't truly living. If that life doesn't have continuity, if that life is not eternal, then it's not really, really life. Are you with me on that? Does that make sense? Sort of. So true life is marked by the idea of eternality. And what is eternality? Eternality means that who you are and what you live for is expressed. And the truth is, in, in a life that's truly lived, that expression will be stronger after passing than even while a person was alive. Because while a person is alive, their values, their core values, their identity is limited to their physical space, to their body, to their container, to the container of their soul. But after the passing, when the soul is now unfettered, when the soul is now unleashed from the body, the soul is no longer limited. If that spirit continues to live, if that spirit was alive and was active and continues to influence, it can influence in an exponentially greater way than while it was contained in that container of the body. Does any of this make sense? Yes? So again, a few different points. I want to, again, just quickly summarize. True life is eternal life, is, which you, we can call legacy, but it means life that lives on. And the truest... Um, um, uh, so what I'm looking for, revelation or manifestation or expression, but better, expression of that life is when the life, when the influence increases after one's passing, then you know they really lived. If someone's influence increases after their passing, you know that that's real life. That's real life. So let's talk about Sarah. Let's understand who she was. If we're talking about Sarah's life continuing on after her passing in an even stronger way, which is what we're getting to, which is why we're calling it the life of Sarah, because how do we know she lived? It's because when we look at what happened after her life, it reflects who she was. If that's the case, then we need to know who she was. So who was she? So typically, here's, and, and if, if what I just said a second ago, five seconds ago, is a little confusing, don't worry. It's all going to make sense. It's all going to make sense at the end. Just stay with me. Stay with me. Okay. Typically, we lump together Avram and Sarah. Abram and Sarah, the first two Jews, the first Jewish couple on a mission, monotheism, etc. That's typical. We typically lump them together. Avram, Sarah, they were a team. Not so fast. Not so fast. We don't want to ever gloss over details by painting with broad brushes. That's not how to learn Torah. To learn Torah means precision. To learn Torah means specificity. We're looking at the details. And when you look at the details, you realize that Avram and Sarah, although they were a team, they were complete opposites. What do I mean? Avram, Abraham, is marked by the trait of kindness, certainly, and generosity, certainly. But he's also marked by the idea that he spread himself out to everyone. He was a universalist. He was a monotheist, but he believed in spreading this message to everyone, far and wide. Whoever walked by his tent, come on in. I got something to tell you. I got some food for you and some monotheistic messaging. 
everyone who walked by. He didn't discriminate. It was a universal message. He took the message of monotheism and packaged it in a kugel. He packaged it in babka. He packaged it in a knish. He said, you're hungry? Good. Eat and we'll schmooze with Fabrenga about monotheism. He was a universalist. He spread it everywhere far and wide. That was Abraham. Let's take a look at some texts that speak about the universal quality of Abraham. Okay, let's take a look-see at text number 8b. Take a look at text 8b, page number 60 in your books or booklets. I'm going to put it up on the this, on this screen in a moment. All right, here we go, text 8b. Here's what, here's what God says about Abraham when he changed his name from Avram to Avraham. And your name shall no longer be called Abram or Avram, but your name shall be called Avraham, Abraham, with an extra, with an extra hey, an H sound. Why? For I've made you the father of a multitude of nations. Avram was meant to influence, to spawn, to influence a multitude of nations. Think about it. Who comes from Avram? Who comes from Abraham? Muslims, Christians. Muslims, Christians, everybody. Everybody. And Avram had an influence. On every, ultimately, Avram influences everybody. Eastern religions now, yeah, Buddhism, right? Uh, Avram is influencing everybody. So now you were talking about Avram spreading the message. That's what, that's part of Christian dogma, is to spread the word. So that's interesting. So, it, so Christian, Christ, Christians may believe in spreading the word, but that's not necessarily the only spreading the word. Avram was an original, was an OG spreader of the word, yeah. He spread the word before spreading the word was even a thing. He was into that. That was his deal. That was his, uh, that was his thing. He, but he spread the word to everybody. He was a universalist. He spread it to everybody. Right? Yeah. I'll say the difference is the mission, that the Christian mission, that it's to save your soul from the devil being versus there's not that necessarily same type of tension. Right. It's not like we're saving you from, etc. It's just sharing, sharing something. It's a little bit different, but... But, but the core idea, but the core idea that Avram was a spreader of, inf of, of, of influence, and he was an influencer, he was a broad influencer. That was Avram. Avram was about broad influence. Now take a look at what Rashi says on that verse, text 8c. Okay, right below 8b is 8c. And Rashi says, what does it mean, the father of multitude of nations, Avhamon? It's, oh, sorry, Avhamon is an acrostic of his name, Avraham, the race that was in his name originally denoting that he was the father only of Aram, which was his native place, whereas now he became the father of a whole world. So Avram means he was the father in, of Ram, which is Ram Narayim, which is one place. But now, he, so he only influenced there originally, but now his, he's going to influence everywhere, the whole world, a multitude of nations. Avram, in short, was an influencer. Avram was a broad influencer. Take a look at the next text, text 9a. The Torah says, And Avram, Abraham, planted an Eshel, a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and he called there in the name of God, the God of the world. So he plants a tree, and there he pronounces God's name. And as famously as the Talmud says, Hey, good to see you. Welcome. I heard, as the, I heard about the babka. Nice. Oh, Lisa, you heard the babka? All right, good. It's, uh, it's all about the babka. All right, here, pass this down, please. All right, we're on page um, 61. Okay, text 9b. And he called there, says the Talmud, 
Uh, sorry, it says the Torah, he called, uh, Abraham called her in the name of the Lord, the everlasting God of the world. Reish Lakish said, read not and he called, but and he made the call. In other words, it's not that he believed in God solely, it's that he called, caused others to believe in God, thereby teaching that our father Abraham caused the name of the Holy and Blessed Behe to be uttered by the mouth of every passerby. He taught everybody to speak about God and monotheism. How was this? How did, he, how did he pull this off? After travelers had eaten and drunk in his home, in his tent, they stood up to bless him. Thank you, Avram. But he said to them, no, 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 no. Did you eat of mine? You ate of that which belongs to the God of the world. Thank, praise, and bless him who spoke, and the world came into being. In other words, Avram taught everyone to bench, to, 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 to thank God. You know, you know what bench means? Bench means to bless. You bench after you eat uh, after your food. Benching, not benching. Also benching, but spiritual benching, right? Oh, man, I benched three sets today. <laughs> I ate breakfast, lunch, and supper. Okay, so here's the deal. Here's the deal. Avram was a broad influencer. And what about Sarah? What about his wife? Oh, we typically think of Sarah was with him, partner in crime. They were together. Uh, sort of. Super sort of. Super sort of. Resh Lakish, he was a, he was a, um, he was a Talmudic scholar. Sarah was a little bit different. Think about it. So whereas Avram fathered Ishmael, the father of, of Islam, and father, Sarah only had one, and, and we said before that Avram had other kids from Keturah, Hagar, and he sent them to the east. Sarah has only one child. Right? She sends away Hagar and Ishmael. She sends away the, the, the influence that she doesn't want. Sarah is very selective. So whereas Avram, and I, want, and I used in the email that I sent out a few hours ago, the difference between a light bulb and a laser. What's the difference? How focused is the light? Is it broad or is it narrowly focused? Avram was broad, shining the light as broad and as wide as possible. Avram, Abraham was a monotheism. I'm going to teach it. I'm going to go wide and broad. I'm going to, send, I'm going to spray this message to everybody in earshot and beyond. And Sarah was very focused. Sarah says, no, Hagar has to go. Yishmael has to go. Only Yitzchak. You have to keep it focused. Keep it focused on, those, on, on where the mission needs to go. Listen to this wild story of the Talmud. Listen to this absolutely wild story in the Talmud. This is text number 10. This will blow your mind. Okay, text 10. I'm going to pull it up on the screen. Let's read this together. It's page 62. Rabbi Bina'ah. Rabbi Benah, the Talmud says, used to mark out caves where there were dead bodies. Why? So that people who were needed to not come in contact with ritual impurity, they shouldn't step on, on top of graves. Today, we have cemeteries and everything is marked. But back in the day, people could theoretically be buried anywhere. So this rabbi made it his life's mission, amongst other things, to mark unmarked graves and to make sure that everyone knew if you were a Kohen, a priest, and you couldn't become tummy, you should not uh, impure, you shouldn't walk on top of that grave because that would render one impure. So he used to mark out graves. Listen to this. When he came to the cave of Abraham, of Avram, he found Eliezer, the servant of Avram, standing at the entrance. He said to him, what is Avram doing? Heyo, right, you're with me? This is like thousands of years after his passing, okay? So this, he's saying, what's Avram doing? He replied, he is sleeping. <laughs> you would think, right? He's sleeping. And, but get this, this is the crazy part. And Sarah, his wife, is gazing at his head. <laughs> Super mysterious, right? So the rabbi, Rabbi Benaz, said, go and tell him that Benaz is standing at the entrance. Go tell him Benaz here. <laughs> but no, he's the rabbi, the rabbi Benaz who's marking the graves. Yeah, right. Said Avram to him, let him enter. So he went in and surveyed the cave and came out again. 
Okay, basically, we know where Avram is buried generally, but not at the exact spot, which is what Rabbi Benal was marking. So he wanted to enter the cave and figure out the exact spot where vertically you wouldn't be able to stand on top of whatever. So he knocks on the door. Eliezer is there. How is Eliezer still around? Who knows? I'm, I'm not necessarily going to explain all the details of the story, but some I will. So Eliezer's there. He says, hey, how's Avram? What's he up to? Sleeping. And Sarah's checking out, checking out his head. All right, let him know that I'm here. He says, come on in. Comes in, does his thing, and leaves. Okay, this is a Talmudic story. You know, we just wrapped up a, a, a course this past Thursday called Curious Tales of the Talmud. We could have used this one right here. This is a curious tale. What does it mean that she was looking at his head? So some say, oh, she was like looking at his head. But Hasidus, Hasidic philosophy says, no. You ever see a mother, like with a child, looking at the child's hair? And like combing through the hair? Picking through the hair? You ever see this? Yes? Yeah. No? Yeah. All right. If you haven't, all right, it's okay also. But sometimes moms, sometimes mom, moms will like look at the hair, comb the hair, check if there's any, you know, any schmutz, any dirt, any knots, any whatever. Like they, <laughs> Right? No, legit. Legit. The Tzemach Tzedek, the third Chabad Rebbe says, this is what Sarah does. Avram is broad and wide. Avram spreads out the message. And Sarah says, let's make sure there are no um, lice or ticks or knots in the hair. In other words, let's make sure that the message is going to those that really should be hearing the message. So whereas Avram is a universalist on some level, still monotheistic, but whereas he's about more universally, universally spreading the message, Sarah is more about a particular spreading of the message, a little bit more particular than universal. So although they work together, she keeps them in check, right? So he's like, let's tell everybody. She's like, okay, but let's, let's, let's keep it focused on, on those that really need to hear the message. This was the, the, the dynamic. The ta- Are you, does this make sense? Does any of this make sense? Yes? Yes? Let me show you that Samad said this explanation because I, I, I mentioned it, but yeah, let's do a text 11. Sarah would separate those hairs so that they would be as they were without any spiritual impurities getting mixed up in them. That is to say that the converts who were receiving energy from Avram as hairs emerged from the head should be pure of any dross or contamination. Indeed, we find that there have been converts who were great tzaddikim, like Rabbi Akiva, Uncle is the convert, Rabbi Meir, Shmaya, Naftalion, and Avaju was a prophet. Certainly they all derived energy from, Av- from Avram Avinu from Abraham. This was because Sarah removed any impurities from the hair of Avram Avinu that they should be clean of all dross and that the spiritual contan- con- uh, contaminant of lice should not be found in them. This doesn't mean anything literally. There's not literal lice that we're talking about here. Don't worry. What we're talking about here is simple. Avram spread the message to everyone, but Sarah focuses the message on those that will most likely hear it to make sure that the message doesn't get too diluted, too universal. You know, sometimes when you want to, you know, something's like, what is Judaism about? Love and peace. Really? That's Judaism? Love and peace? Isn't that a little bit universal? Right? What about Shabbos? What about kosher? What about mezuzah? Love and peace. You see what happens when you make it too universal? You lose the particular. You make it too... So now, there's advantage of each. The advantage of universal is you're spreading the word. Spreading the word. I was about to say gospel, but hey, we're mixing messages here. All right, that too. Right? The advantage of universal is you're spreading the message far and wide, which is good. And there are universal messages in Judaism. But there are also particular messages in Judaism. So who makes sure that the particular messages are getting focused on? Sarah. Avram goes broad. Sarah goes focused. 
the light, the light bulb, and the laser beam. What's a laser beam? Light that's focused, 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 and that goes further, by the way. A light, a, a light bulb goes wider, yeah? Flash that goes wider, yeah, you have those mag lights. Used to have one of those. Still do, but I also used to, right? Mag- <laughs> All right, you guys have to put up with me. A mag light has those things that you adjust, right? You adjust the focus. Looks like I'm doing shadow puppets on a wall. Might as well do that thing, right? Yeah, you adjust it. It can go wide, but more narrow, or tighter and further. Avram goes wide and broad. Sarah goes deep. Now listen to this. You ready for this? I told you we're going to come back around to the whole point. Get ready for a wallop like you've never seen. You don't see this. You didn't see this coming. Sarah lived her life about the focus. Focus, focus, Avram. Not so wide, focus. After she passes away, Everyone starts to focus. That's why it's called Chayasar, because everyone begins to assume her modal, even Avram, integrates her perspective of focus in all three stories. Ready? Buckle up. What happens with the the burial site? Whose burial site was it before? Who was buried there before? Before Avram bought bought it for his wife, who was buried there before? Mark said it before. Adam and Eve. Which means it was a universal. Adam and Eve are the, fa- the parents of, the, fa- the, the father and mother of all humanity. And Avram buys it for the Jewish people. You with me? What happens here? It goes from universal to particular. Yeah, it was universal. Who was buried there afterwards? Avram and Sarah, Yitzchak and Rivka, and Yaakov and, and, and Leah. It becomes a Jewish burial spot. It goes from universal to particular. That's story number one. Story number two. What happens? They're looking for a wife, looking for a shidduch. You know who had a daughter? You know who had a daughter of eligible age? For Yitzchak? Eliezer. The servant himself, Eliezer, had a daughter. And Eliezer wanted his own daughter to marry Isaac. And when Avram said to him, go find a wife, you know what Eliezer's like? What about my daughter? I got a daughter. What about her? What about her? She's a good girl. She's a good, what about her? No, 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 go to my family at home, back home. Go to my family and find the girl. What about my daughter? Not universal, particular. Going back to the mishpacha. Are you with me? Refocusing inward. Sarah was all about focus. Avram was all about spreading it far wide. Everyone's welcome. But after she passes away, Avram lives her legacy. This is what it means to live her legacy. She was all about focus and Avram begins to focus. Instead of it being a, a burial plot for a universal burial plot for, all, for the founders of humanity, it's a Jewish burial plot. Instead of uh, finding a wife from Eliezer who was, you know, uh, helped in the household, whatever, go back to the family. And the final story is the story of Hagar. Avram remarries Hagar, and he has kids. But what does he do? You read it before. I read it before. We talked about it before. What does he do with those kids? He sends them away. And who does, the legacy, who's, who does the legacy go to exclusively? Yitzchak. He sends Hagar's kids away, just like Sarah had told him with Ishmael years before. Are you with me on this? In the final analysis, in the final analysis, Avram, Avram integrated, no, Avram, so what I'm looking for, he not integrated, he internalized, internalized, internalized. He internalized Sarah's legacy. 
Mark said legacy, I'm saying legacy. He internalized Sarah's legacy. Not just the family, everyone was happy and healthy and fine. That's more than that, more specific than that. It's not just Yitzchak was a nice Jewish boy who became the next patriarch. It's that it's Sarah, who was all about the focus, the laser beam, not the wide, not the broad, not the universal message, but the particular message. Let's make sure that the recipients are who they need to be. And let's kick out those that don't, uh, that don't, don't necessarily fit. This is Sarah's legacy that Avram begins to embrace after her passing. As I said before, the mark of a tzaddik is that when the tzaddik is no the mark of life is that when life on earth ends, the legacy really begins. The life really begins and the influence really begins. And this is what happens with Sarah, that Avram moves from the universal burial place to the particular, finds a wife from his own particular family, and has children from Keturah, but ultimately sends them away to the east so that the legacy can remain with Yitzchak. I want to share a few texts on this, and then we're going to close out with a final message that I hope will pack also a punch. Take a look. Take a look, take a look, take a look at these texts. I'm going to go through them very quickly. Text 12. Text 12, page 64. This talks about the burial spot. The plain of Kiryat Arba, which is Hebron, Rabbi Yitzchak said, text 12, it is called Kiryat Arba, the city of four, for the four couples there, Adam and Eve, Avram and Sarah, Yitzchak and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah. So what we have here is it starts off universal. Adam and Eve, were they Jewish? No, they were the parents of all humanity. Avram and Sarah, Yitzchak and Rivka, Yaakov and Leah, they are now the particular. So it goes from universal to particular, just like Sarah, just like she lived. Um, next, text 13, Eliezer had a daughter. I mentioned this before, Eliezer had a daughter, and he was looking for a pretext so that Avram would turn to Eliezer to marry off his daughter to him, Isaac, and Avram rejected it. Right? He said, what if the girl that I find won't want to come back? In other words, how about my daughter then? And Avram says, no. Nope. I have a special order of nope sauce for that was one. Eliezer right? Jewish? Eliezer was, I don't, you know, was he Jewish? I don't, he wasn't the family. So I understand your question. Wasn't he like, a, wasn't he Jewish? Because he was part of the family. He was like the, the servant. Yeah, it's a good question. I had the same question. But the way the Rebbe frames it is, Again, moving from the universal to the particular, moving from the, the wide angle focus, the wide focus lens to the narrow, the narrow focus. So from the universal to the particular, from, from, from Adam and Eve to a Jewish spot, from you know, marrying anyone, so to speak, to marrying in the family. And then the last piece is Keturah. As we said before, yes, Avram married her and had children, but Avram, the Torah says right there, 14a, and Avram gave all that he possessed to Isaac, and he sent uh, sorry, and to the sons of Aram's concubines, Aram gave gifts and he sent them away to the east, right? That's the way it is. So take a look, 14b, the Kleokar, famous biblical commentary says, Avram gave all that he possessed to Isaac. He withdrew his inheritance from all his other, all his other children. I'm going to say that again. He withdrew his inheritance from all his other children. For that was Sarah's wish when she said, for the son of the maidservant will not inherit with my son. In other words, Sarah's influence that it remained particular and focused like a laser is coming to fruition here. He has more kids, but he keeps it focused on Isaac. Furthermore, the Holy One was be here, agreed with her and said, whatever Sarah tells you, hearken to her voice, for an Isaac will be called your son. So what we have here is the following. Take a look. Take a look at, verse, at text 15 as we conclude final reading of the class. The Rebbe says, the central points from the parasha of Chayisara, although its time frame is after passing, were achieved by Sarah through her work in the 127 years of her life in this world. In other words, her life was finally, finally came to fruition and fulfilled after her passing. When she was alive, Avram had a different way of doing things. When she passed away, he adopted her way to a certain extent. 
However, as she actually went about her work, in other words, as she lived her life for those 127 years, its impact remained concealed and only became revealed after her passing. That's what I just said, right? So while she was alive, it was only her. He was on a different page. Now, in as much as the ultimate purpose of one's life work One's life's work is for the effects of the work to eventually be revealed. Therefore, it's understood that those aspects of the parish in which Sarah's work become revealed are the chayisar, the life of Sarah. They are the completed purpose of her 127 years of her life. So, and I'm paraphrasing as I'm reading because I'm trying to read it quick. The point is like this. That chayisar, the life of Sarah, means that this is where you see her life finally blossoming. Her life finally becomes revealed. Her life finally becomes activated following her death. While she was alive, Avram acted in a bit of a different way. When she passed away, Avram takes the universal barrier spot, makes it particular, finds a wife from his family and for, for Yitzchak, and ultimately sends away all of the other children and re-emphasizes that his legacy will only be with Yitzchak. So what's the moral of the story? The moral of the story is that we actually need balance. We need Avram and we need Sarah. Because we, we all, Judaism has a, part, a universal message as well. And it is about love. And it is about peace. And it is about all these wonderful universal qualities. And we even done, we've even done courses on this. We had a, a JLI course not that long ago, BC, before COVID. The course was called Judaism's Gifts to the World. Some of you took it, Judaism's Gifts to the World. It was all about universal messages and themes that Judaism has gifted to the world. And that's great. And that's very Abrahamic. That's very Abrahamic. But today we're also learning about Sarah, Sarah's message, and that is that we can't ever lose track, we can't ever lose focus on the particular message of Judaism. Yes, Judaism is about peace, love, and, uh, and, and, and goodness and kindness, but it's also about tefillin. It's also about mezuzah. It's also about kashrus. It's also about Shabbos. It's also about Pesach. It's about sukkahs. It's about Rosh Hashanah. It's about the particular stuff as well. Both are true. Avram is true. Sarah is true. So that's one takeaway, which means even as Hillel told the fellow who was converting to Judaism, love your fellow as yourself, or don't do to the other what you don't want done to yourself, that's the whole Torah and the rest is commentary. He also said, now go and study. Now go and study means now learn what Judaism also has to say particularly, because you have to put a mezuzah on your door, and get some kosher food in your house, and rest on Shabbos, and wrap tefillin, and light Shabbat candles. But what about just Loving your neighbor. Okay, that's the universal message. But the particular message is particular. So we, we should never, we should always remember both. The broad, the broad view of Judaism as well as the specific laser um, um, uh, themes of Judaism. That's one message. The other message is, of course, about legacy. Legacy. True life is a life that inspires others even beyond one's time when the soul is in the body. We have the power to grant our loved ones eternality. When we live in concert with their values, we give them eternal life. It's one of the greatest gifts we can give to our loved ones. Because if we forget their legacy, then that means that their life has come to an end. When we remember their legacy and we live on with their inspiration, when we perpetuate who and what they, they, they are, that grants them eternity, and that's probably the most loving thing that we can do, is granting one who is passed on eternity. So let's think about that, the gift that we have to grant legacy, to grant eternality, to grant life, life, chayesara, as we, um, 
as we think about this week's Torah portion. Okay, that's it for me for tonight. I hope this made sense. I hope this was inspiring. And uh, we'll open up to any questions. Let's do questions from our online crew first. Jump in with questions. Actually, you know what? We'll open it to everybody. Why should we segregate? Why, why, uh, why be so narrow? Let's open it up. Let's Abraham it up to everybody. All right, jump, jump in. All right. Yaakov. So, go, you want to go ahead? Yeah, Yaakov, jump in. All right. Um, so, you read the passage about um, how Jacob would um, introduce monotheism to his... Uh, Abraham. His, yeah. Abraham, yeah, to people who were traveling and would, um, he would, you know, give them food and water in the middle of the desert, which is why clouds probably were considered miraculous, because a little bit of shade in the middle of the desert is pretty yeah, nice. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and consider like we consider water. So, but there's also the midrashic um, aspect of the story that he would actually black, not blackmail them, but he would give them two options. Okay, okay, either, okay, here's God. Okay, great. Do you believe me? No. Okay, pay me a million dollars for that, you know, dinner. So, is that what kind of education is that? And in, in, in how? You know, you know, how long lasting would that be if people say this guy just ripped me off um, because I didn't believe in God? <laughs> good, good. So Abraham, he invited people in, he gave them food. And when they said, thank you, he said, don't think of me, thank Hashem. When they said, who's Hashem? I don't believe in Hashem. He said, OK, so then you're going to have to pay up. That's it. You got to pay for your meal in the desert. It's like a ballpark prices. You ever go to a ballpark? Oh, my God. You buy you get a cup of water. It's like twelve dollars. It's like what happened? let alone World Series tickets. Oh my gosh, let's not even talk about that. All right, back to our story. Back to our story. So, so you have a good question. The Rebbe asked this question. So look, you asked the question that the Rebbe asked. It's a very, it's a very, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a powerful thing. The Rebbe explains that, that sometimes a person thinks they don't believe, but they really do. They think they don't believe, they're, they're stubborn, they, they think, oh, I don't believe, I'm not a believer. Okay, but if you get down to the core, they believe. What Avram was doing was removing the obstacle to their belief, removing their stubbornness. So they thought, oh, I don't believe. And Avram says, okay, so then you have to pay up. Okay, I believe. So that wasn't just lip service. It really reflected the truth because at, at, the, at the core, we all believe. Someone says, but I don't believe. All right, you just have to be, uh, you know, a little, a little uh, financial pressure and you'll believe. No, I'm kidding. It's just a little, uh, a little uh, yeah. It's like what Maimonides says regarding uh, gittin, regarding divorce. So the law is that uh, husband, in, in the case where it's necessary, husband should give his wife a divorce and should not, not give her a divorce. What happens if the husband, and, and a divorce has to be given consensual. The husband has to agree to give the wife a divorce. That's the law. So what happens if the husband says, I don't want to give my wife a divorce, kind of keeping her hostage. So the court twists his arm. What, what do I mean by twist the arm? I can't say on camera. We have to talk about that after the class. So for our Babka crew, we'll talk about that, what it means to twist his arm. All right. But there's, a, there's some arm twisting that happens until he says, okay, fine, I'll do it. And that's okay. The question is asked, but he just said, I, I'll do it because of the arm twisting. So that doesn't mean he really wants to. It's not consensual. It is. As, as Maimonides says, everyone wants to do the right thing. It's just they think they don't want to do the right thing. They want to do the right thing. Sometimes you apply a little pressure and it breaks down the resistance and then the true core comes out. Yes, I want to do the right thing. Yes, I believe in God. So it's the same idea. So Yaakov, good question. The way the rabbi answers it is, deep down, all, all, all humanity believes. It's just the other stuff that gets in the way. So this pressure allowed them to, to re-engage with their true beliefs. All right, other questions? Rabbi, other questions? Jump in? Yes, okay? sure. All right, uh, 
it, the, it's the particular that feels pain, not the universal. It is the particular that can be victimized, not the universal. <laughs> and Froze, Franz Rosenzweig uh, defines a fanatic as a person who loves the person next to his neighbor. Yeah. And, and examples of fanaticism are I like that one. <laughs> communism. Right. Where, where, where uh, communism is a, is a, is a universalist uh, right. uh, political theory. Yeah. It could be called uh, so fascism also. Fascism also is like, yeah, yeah, it's for the greater good, for the greater cause, but the, the individual. Yeah, that's, that's, that's one of the, when we did the course, uh, Judaism's Gifts of the World, it's one of the things we spoke about is the idea of the value of the individual, that Judaism brings to, to mind not only the value of the collective, which would be more universal in nature, but the value of the individual. Every individual life yeah, the, is... The like, individual feels pain, not the collective. Right, right, right. Now, which okay, is, okay, and a second thought, uh, independent of what I just said, uh, Rabbi Akiva and his, his uh, analysis of the crowns. Yeah. I don't believe that came down to us. I don't, I don't believe we, we fully appreciate uh, his theory about the crowns. And actually, uh, Rabbi Akiva sentenced a person to death based on the crowns. And even his contemporaries criticized him for using that methodology to... Uh, to pet, to, uh, to to sentence a person to death. Right. Yeah. So I, I I don't know how that has to do with what we're talking about. Well, I, we mentioned crown, so that's good. That's good crown information. Those are we might call them the crown jewels of uh, of uh, <laughs> of Torah. But yeah, we don't we don't have that tradition. We don't we lost those traditions. Good. Good. Yes, Matt. I'll repeat the, the, the point of the question. Yeah. Separating, kind of like separating the task, the broader task versus this the narrow focus. The first company that I worked for, the CEO and the CEO would have meetings with employees like once a month. And I got to kind of like know them. The CEO was a very broad strategic mm. person. And the CEO, the second in command, was the narrow focus. Right. So when he talked about the tasks, I kept thinking about them. They, they separated their tasks in a very similar Amazing. Way. So Matt says a story about the first company he worked for. So the CEO had a very broad way of thinking. And the COO, yeah, yeah. had a very narrow way of thinking. And I guess hopefully they complemented each other. Yeah. I think they complemented each other. So when it works, it's great. So Avram and Sarah had that kind of that, that dual type of approach. When Sarah passes away, Avram has to integrate that into himself. Because there is value in that integration. But he now has to, he has to be the one to express it because there's no sorrow here. So he has to be his own, his own counter. But he's, he's got to integrate the balance oh, within I himself. I don't, I don't know the answer to this, but the CEO left after I left the company. Interesting. So now she has to go integrate. Right, the CEO left. So now the CEO has to have the yeah, broad. Yeah. Exactly. It's like, it's like anything. It's like, you know, somebody is a baker, right? And all, they're great at baking. And they say, you know, why am I working for someone else? Let me open up my own bakery. But now instead of baking, now they have to manage a business. And that's a much broader task, right? It's a much broader malacha. So now you have to know your work, but also we have so many examples in life. The, 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 you could call it dichotomy or you could call it the dual dynamic or the duality of, you know, the broad and the narrow, the universal and the particular. Wait, so, the huh? You just separate the malacha? You just said like a, either Yiddish or Hebrew word. Oh, did I say that? Yeah, like, uh, you did like separate the something with it. I, I sounded like Malaka. Oh, 
I don't, oh, sorry. I don't know. We'll have to go back to the tape. But anyway, the, the, I, there's a lot of, of, um, of, of, of this duality in which we have you know, the universal and the particular. So I gave one, you know, tonight we focused on one example within Judaism of the, the universal message of Judaism versus the particular, like the universal mitzvahs or the particular mitzvahs. And we need to do both. We need to love our fellows yourself. We need to teach love, peace, and kindness in the world. And the universal stuff is very important. And education and all this stuff. It's great. And at the same time, we have to know who we are. So, you know, maybe just to kind of, just to like hammer this home one more time, there are some who only talk about the universal message of Judaism. It's all about, you know, saving the planet, saving the environment. It's all about the universal stuff. Loving your neighbor as yourself. It's all about that stuff. But the actual, like, tefillin, you're not going to find tefillin. And then there are people that are all about the tefillin, and they don't care about their neighbor. They'll back up to their neighbor's car and say, uh, why'd you park it here? Right? I mean, they forget to be nice. Huh? They forget to be nice. You, they forget to be nice. So you really need both. You need to wrap tefillin and be a mensch. Can you imagine? Oh, that's like the major, that's like the combo, Shepa combo. Somebody says, I don't need the particular mitzvahs, I'm a good person. Somebody says, who needs to be a good person if I have all these mitzvahs under my belt? And the true answer is, do both. Do a mitzvah and be a mensch. That's a good bumper sticker. Do a mitzvah, be a mensch.com. All right, that's it for tonight. Go Braves. We'll end up with that. Yes, go Braves. And um, I want to wish everybody a Laila Tov. Have a good night, everyone. Um, we'll see you all next week. Don't forget, very important, don't forget. We have a, we started our brand new course, Outsmarting Anti-Semitism, last night. We're doing it again tomorrow. I'm not telling you live because that would not be fair like I did with the Bobka now. But I'm telling you in advance. Tomorrow at 12 noon, high noon, in this very same space, right here, upstairs, at IJA, Chabad in town, 7.30 Ponds Place, we will be having live bagels. No, the bagels will not be living, but we will have bagels and cream cheese and lox and a full spread. So join us. It's going to be fun. It's going to be enjoyable. We'll also be having a class amidst all the food fun. There will also be a class taking place. So join me at 12 noon tomorrow. Um, also, we have upcoming some amazing new events and programs and classes, including a Rosh Chodesh um, course for women called Well Connected. Everyone wants to be well connected, so come to the course. Yeah, everyone wants connections, come to the course. That's number one. Number two, the Kabbalah of the Matrix. We have other beautiful events and, and courses coming up, but check the website and you'll find out. All right, my friends, Laila Tov, have a wonderful night. We'll see you guys soon. I have a question. Okay. About the grammar. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Chaye, sir, the largest, does that mean her, her life continued beyond her own private life through Abraham and Yitzchak? Is That's that legacy, her? yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're That's saying because means, Chaye means lives, plural? Uh, yes. Sure, yeah, yeah. So that it's, was my question. It's, yeah, it's kind of like when we say Chayim as life, Chayim or Lechayim. Chayim is also plural. We say yes. Lechayim is uh is plural why, why plural so it's been explained that life is truly lived when when we share it when we connect with the other and in this case when we cross the divide which is the ultimate crossing of the divide between yeah. life and afterlife in in the legacy continuing so beautifully said yeah uh, all right the lives of sarah that's right the lives okay 
Yeah. Yeah. Or I have one more thing to add. Yeah. That there is a, there there is a by by um, social anthropologists a theory that the word Brahmin in India. The Brahmins were the high class. Right. Why? Because they were considered the children of Ab- Abraham. Right. Right. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. This is uh, this this is a theory that meant that some have posited. There's no way to corrupt. There's no way to verify and validate it. Exactly. But I've I've read this as well. Um, there's a book that I read once about this, and I forgot the name of the book. But I've, uh, yeah, there's, there's a theory out there, which I mentioned, I floated in general before about the gifts, the, the, the children sent to the East with gifts. Rashi says gifts of wisdom. So we put the pieces together. It seems like there's a, there's a connection. All right, let's wrap it up. All right, we'll see you guys. Laila Tov, have a wonderful night. Take care, everybody. See you soon.